passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, this morning, we are returning to Genesis, and uh, I don't know about you, I'm going to ask you, raise your hand if you're excited uh, to be done with our previous series, which was some of the the very difficult issues. We looked at uh, who you should vote for last week, so that was fun. We looked at what you should do with your money the week before that, so that was even more fun. And then the week before that, we spent a couple times, uh, a couple weeks looking at women in ministry and what is their role in the church. And so I'm very relieved that we're back in, uh, in a book of the Bible, spending some time in Genesis, uh, which coincidentally enough, we started just about one year ago to the day. Uh, looking at this book, and we've made it through 37 chapters. I remember last time, or excuse me, when we started this series, I cracked a joke about my son being four months old, and he would probably have to finish this series for me. And uh, and it looks like that's not going to be the case, even though now my son is a a year and four months old. But we are going to finish it before he's qualified to preach. And so so we're okay with that. Uh, And we're going to jump back in, uh, starting in Genesis 37 this morning. Genesis, the entire book, is really a book about origins. It looks at the origins of the world. It looks at the origins of humanity specifically. looks at the origins of really what went wrong with our world. It looks at the origins of language, the origins of marriage, the origins of culture. But the most important thing that it looks at is it looks at the origins of God's plan to rescue humanity. I think no matter where we're at this morning, whether we're Christian or not, I think we can all agree that that deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, there's something wrong with the world. This morning, we, we stand on, on the, the anniversary, the 15th anniversary of September 11th, a, a tragic experience in our nation's history. And it's a reminder to us, there's something wrong in the world. There's something wrong with us. There's a disconnect between what we think the world should be like, and yet what we experience each and every day. Each and every one of us knows that something, whether it was long ago or if it's always been that way, something's broken. And we're living in the aftermath of that brokenness. Every religion, every non-religion claims to explain what happened to the world, what happened at this break, so to speak. Thousands of years ago, Every people group on the planet tried to explain, tried to describe what was wrong with the world and where all of this came from. The Babylonians in ancient times said that the entire creation was created out of the carcass of a slain god. Other different people groups said that humans were created to be slaves to God. Other people groups said that our suffering was a punishment because the gods hated us. And it's really in that context that a family of wandering shepherds, a group of, of people, the people of Abraham, it's this context that they lived in. You see, this family also had explanations of our origins too, but there, there was a key difference between the, the explanation given by Abraham and by his descendants and the explanations of the surrounding nations and tribes. Abraham had encountered the Creator. 
Abraham didn't choose to make up his origin story about where God comes from and what God has done and where all that we see comes from. In fact, Abraham, when we first see him in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, he's quite content worshiping the moon like the rest of the people that he was from. But one day, out of nowhere, a strange and distant and new God appeared and said, follow me. Leave your home and follow me. And so Abraham does exactly that. He leaves the luxury that he was living in to follow this relatively unknown God to a new and unknown land. And in response to his obedience, God promises him three things. First, he promises Abraham land. This is quite good news for a man who is leaving his land behind. Second, he promises him children. Again, wonderful news for a man in his mid-70s without any kids. And he promises him a covenant, a special relationship with this God. All of those things are mentioned at the very beginning of his promise to Abraham, his calling to Abraham. And this calling, this promise is not just for Abraham. In fact, the the. Bible makes very clear that this calling, this promise that's given to Abraham, this blessing that's given to Abraham is really so that God can bless all nations. The entirety of Genesis is about these three things. God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, God's faithfulness to his promise to the creation, that God will give Abraham land, offspring, and a covenant. You see, thousands of years before Abraham was born, before Abraham was called by God, the the book of Genesis tells us that there was a rebellion against God, that the creation rebelled against God and his good plan for how things were supposed to operate. The first few humans were governors of God's creation. They were second in command only to God. And yet they decided that wasn't good enough. Genesis chapter 3 tells us about their rebellion against God, their attempts to overthrow God, and it also tells us how their attempt to overthrow God failed miserably. You would think that God would execute them for this treason. Indeed, that's what we would do in our country. This sort of treason would lead to an execution, would lead to the death penalty. We would think that God would be full of anger after all that he had given to these two governors for them to turn their back on him and try to steal his throne. And yes, God was angry. Yes, death did come from their treason. But in the midst of judgment, in the midst of God's wrath, God promises them that he has a plan. He has a plan to save his creation from the mess that they made in their rebellion against him. In the midst of his words of of judgment against the serpent, in Genesis chapter 3, God declares this promise. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then notice this promise. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right here in the midst of judgment, moments after rebellion, God promises 
I have a plan to fix this. I have a plan to restore everything, to make everything right once more. One day, a son is going to come to the woman, to humanity, who will defeat this serpent and who will usher in a new creation. The book of Genesis tells us that Abraham is a part of that plan. Same with Isaac, Abraham's son. Same with Jacob, Isaac's son. Through all of the faults and failures and rejections, rebellions, idolatry, the the ugliness of God's people throughout Genesis, God sticks with them. And that's especially true with this morning's chapter. This morning I mentioned we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37 is uh, really the, the last chapter, so to speak, the last act of the book of Genesis. Genesis 37 through 50, these chapters just focus on one story, and that's the story of Joseph, the story of Jacob, and his sons. I think we're missing the point if we don't look at, at this, uh, this section of Genesis in the broader context of Genesis and recognize that this isn't primarily about Joseph. Yes, Joseph is mentioned the most, but these chapters reveal to us that God is faithful, that God is committed to his people, that he is committed to Jacob, he is committed to Jacob's sons, honestly, in spite of themselves. And for those of us who are Christians this morning, we can recognize that that's true in our own lives as well, isn't it? God is committed to his people. God is committed to us, not because of anything that we have done, but honestly in spite of all that we have done and all that we continue to do. God's plan isn't going to be stopped by our sin. God isn't going to be stopped by the sin of Jacob's brothers, excuse me, of Joseph's brothers, of of their evil that we see time and time again. God has a plan to save his creation. And as a part of that plan, amazingly, God uses sin. God uses evil for good. That's what we're going to really land on this morning. If there's one truth that we want to take away this morning, I think it's just simply this. God has a plan for human sin. God has a plan for human sin. God uses sin to accomplish his purposes. Here in a few moments, we're going to see this is true in the lives of Joseph and the lives of his brothers, but it's also true in our lives. God uses sin, the sin that we experience from others that hurts us, the sin that we commit in our own lives. God uses that for his purposes to make his children more like him. God uses the pain we experience, the hurt we experience, the frustration that we experience, all of those things to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And this truth leads us to an unshakable hope. An unshakable hope that is only found in the gospel. As we approach God's word, let's pray once more. Father, we are so in awe of this hope that is ours in the gospel. That it is unshakable. That it is unmovable. That it will not change with our culture. It will not change with the news but it is rock solid and it is ours in Christ Jesus. 
God, as we approach your word this morning, we do ask that your spirit would come and speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Also, this is printed in your sermon notes. It should be behind me on the screen as well. This is 37. Uh, We're going to look at the first four verses here in the beginning. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. As we open this story, we, we notice that there uh, are quite a, uh, quite a few issues in Jacob's family. There's a number of issues that are, that are facing this family. And as the text opens, it almost seems like it's the end of the story. The, the text opens with this line, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourns in the land of Canaan. It's almost a happily ever after in Canaan kind of language. But don't miss what this text is trying to tell us, what Moses is telling us here in Genesis. The three promises, the promises of land, of seed, and of covenant, all three of those are present here. First, Jacob, of the promised line of Abraham, is given land. Jacob is in the land and God has kept his promise. The next thing that we see is offspring. Verse 2 begins with, these are the generations of Jacob. Again, God has kept his promise to Jacob. And the third is the covenant. Is this present here? Yes, it it is. Notice in verse 3. In verse 3, the name for Jacob is Israel. Israel was the name of the covenant given to Jacob from God. It's a reminder here at the very beginning that Jacob is a part of God's plan in spite of everything he's done up to this point. In spite of all of the the lies, the deceit, the cheating, the stealing, God has remained faithful to Jacob. But of course, reality is far from happily ever after, and, and that's what we see here, the Bible doesn't pretend it's all sunshine and roses for Jacob and his family. Here, just in these first four verses, we can see that there's a storm brewing. That there's a storm brewing in Joseph's life, in Jacob's family here. And this family is going to be destroyed by all of the, the seeds of sin that have been sowed up to this point. The story opens with Jacob Jacob has 12 sons from four different women, not exactly what we recommend here at Crosswinds. And most of them are out in the fields. They're taking care of their dad's very, very large flock of sheep. As his sons are away from dad, they they begin to conduct themselves in a way that, that dad probably wouldn't approve of. And so the second youngest, this 17-year-old named Joseph, well, he decides to take it upon himself to tell dad what has happened. But notice what he says. 
The text tells us that, that he gives a bad report. And we don't know exactly what that bad report is, but based off of the, the pasts that we've seen up to this point of his brothers, that they are guilty of incest, Genesis 35. They are guilty of slaughtering an entire town in revenge, Genesis 34. They are uh, guilty of, of rape and pillaging that, time, that town, again, Genesis 34. Uh, my guess is Joseph's report is probably pretty accurate. And yet, at the same time that we look every single time this, this phrase is used in the Bible, this bad report is used in the Bible, it, it refers to falsification, it refers to slander, to exaggeration. And so, in one sense, we can recognize that Joseph's probably right. He's, he's accurate in, in saying his brothers weren't acting the way God would approve. And yet, at the same time, he, he exaggerates, he embellishes the story, he fudges the truth to make himself look better in, in the eyes of his father compared to his brothers. None of us have ever done that, right? Now, we don't need to, to go very far to see that this was completely unnecessary in Jacob's life, or excuse me, in Joseph's life. He didn't have to paint a, a very big picture to, to say or to show his dad that he was, uh, was his dad's favorite. Genesis is very clear up to this point that Joseph is, uh, is Jacob's favorite up to this moment. And the, the reason why is because Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite li- wife. The others were born to women that Jacob didn't love, and apparently that lack of love for their mothers transitioned and carried over to their sons. And there's this tension that's very high here in this family because of this favoritism of Jacob. And this bad report really just seals the deal here. As he goes to his father with his bad report, his dad rewards him with his majestic coat. And we don't really need to know exactly what it looks like. What we do need to know is the the purpose of the significance of this coat. This coat was a sign of royalty. It was a sign that the 11th out of 12 children was being named the heir. That he was going to have the privileges of the firstborn. What causes this? What is, what is Jacob's reasoning here? After all, Jacob, if we look at his life, it is filled with pain and conflict because his dad played favorites. So why is he perpetuating this exact same sin? I think the key to understand this is the description of Joseph in verse 3. There at the very end, it says that he was the son of his old age. He was the son of his old age age. This phrase is used earlier to refer to Isaac, Abraham's promised son, the promised son of Abraham that will continue these promises of God. It's not used of Ishmael, the firstborn, but it's used to refer to the one that God chose. And I, and I think that, that Jacob here, He's, he's, thinking, he's thinking a little like this. He's like, surely this, this is also true of Joseph. God chose Isaac. He didn't choose Ishmael. God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. Now he's going to choose Joseph. He's not going to choose Joseph's brothers. He sees himself in Joseph. And he thinks that he's doing exactly what God wants him to do. Of course, Jacob is quite wrong here. Jacob was wrong. 
Joseph sure was the most admirable, but Genesis teaches us that God doesn't choose people off of their qualifications. He chooses them based off of grace. The promised line is is not perpetuated through holy living. It's actually just perpetuated by God's unconditional grace to sinners like us. We see that coming up in the next chapter. Judah, the, the promised one, the one that the Messiah will one day come through, is very, very wicked. He's, he's hypocritical. He's just disgusting in Genesis chapter 38. And yet God chooses him anyway. Things are bad for Jacob's family. The brothers resent Joseph because of this bad report. They resent him because of this favoritism. And even when, when Joseph tries to reconcile himself with his brothers, the, the text tells us in verse 4 that they couldn't speak peacefully with him. Literally, that means that they just refused to even say hello to him. They couldn't even talk to this man. This family has reached the boiling point, but something tips them over the edge, and that is what comes next. That's Joseph's dreams. We're not going to read those here for the sake of time, but Joseph has two dreams that predict his exaltation over his brother's. In ancient times, dreams were seen as omens from God. If you had two dreams that were telling you the exact same message, then my goodness, it was sure to come to pass. So Joseph has these dreams, and he he tells his brothers, he tells his family, and they're just livid. They're furious that not only has their father chosen Joseph, but now it seems like their God has chosen Joseph as well. There's this bitterness in their souls. And this bitterness reaches a fever pitch and this anger boils over in the next part of Genesis 37. We're going to start in verse 12 and we're just going to read the rest of the chapter. This is going to be a longer uh, passage or, or section of scripture than we normally read at one point, but I think it's important for us to just read it all in one shot. So starting in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Well, here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And he said this, that he might rescue him out out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. 
Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloths on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. At some point, after Joseph's dreams, the sons are sent out to care for the flocks again, but there's one thing that's different than the beginning of this story. There's no Joseph this time. While Jacob sends his sons out to shepherd the flock, Joseph is kept at home. Joseph continues to wear this coat of royalty, signaling his favoritism, his firstborn status in the family of Jacob. And the brothers, meanwhile, are living on the land 50 miles away in Shechem. Now, surprisingly, Jacob decides to send Joseph to go check on the brothers. This is a five-day journey on foot, 50 miles, and he sends them on on this journey alone. There's no one else with him. And even more surprisingly, Joseph responds with unquestioning obedience. He says, here I am. This phrase, whenever it's used in Genesis, refers to obedience. We see that with Abraham before God, when God calls him in Genesis 22 to sacrifice Isaac, he responds with, here I am. Isaac says the exact same thing to Abraham when he is about to be sacrificed. Here I am. Jacob has a son in Joseph who follows with unquestioning obedience. And he follows this obedience all the way to Shechem, this place where in Genesis 34 we saw this massacre, this slaughter of the people of Shechem based off of Jacob's sons. But when he gets there, he can't find them. But as he's wandering the fields, he encounters a man, and that man knows where they are. He says, well, they're not here, but they went on to Dothan. Dothan, which is 15 miles northwest of Shechem. And so... Joseph sets off. Now, Dothan is kind of set up on a hill. The brothers were on this hill, and they can see Joseph coming from a long way off. They can recognize his walk. And of course, they can recognize that dreaded coat. I imagine, this is just conjecture, it's just speculation here, but I imagine this is kind of how it started. As they saw Joseph coming to them, just started his wishful thinking. It just worked into a full force rage over time. Imagine one of them just said, well, look, here comes the dreamer. 
Another one responded, well, look, it's daddy's favorite. The one who's too good to work with us. Another one said, I want to punch him in his perfect face. Another one responded, punch. I'd like to do a whole lot more than that if you know what I mean. And the next one responds, well, what, what if he accidentally, you know, accidentally fell into one of these old cisterns that's laying around here near Dothan? And on and on and on, this fantasizing goes. It's coupled with the sharing of why they just hate Joseph so much. And it, it, at some point, when Joseph is still a long way off, this fantasizing actually turns murderous. They no longer just comfort themselves with what they want to do to Joseph. They actually begin planning his death and his murder. But thankfully, Reuben is there. Reuben intervenes, and and he does so selfishly. If you remember from Genesis 35, Reuben, uh, he he was the oldest of the the group. He He was Jacob's firstborn, but he fell out of dad's graces when he attempted to seize power in the family. So he's lost his status as the firstborn. And he sees this as an opportunity to get back on dad's good side. He says, you know what? If I save dad's favorite son, if I bring him back to dad, maybe dad will love me again. Maybe dad will forgive me for what I did to him. And maybe I can once more be the firstborn in this family. And so the people, the the brothers agree to just throw Joseph in a cistern when he arrives. And I just want you to imagine what Joseph was feeling or what he was experiencing when he arrives. He just traveled 65 miles on his own to to obediently visit his brothers, to check in on them. You see, Joseph's a good kid. He's not perfect. He embellishes his brother's faults to make himself look good. And his youthful exuberance and probably a little bit of pride, he shares these dreams about his exaltation that really comes across as rubbing it in his brother's faces. He's far from perfect, but he's a good kid. He loves his family. He's trying to to honor his dad here by going to check on his brothers. He, He tried reconciling with his brothers in the past. He probably has some food that he's bringing with him from home to give to his brothers. And when he sees them, I imagine he's running up the hill to greet them. But instead of being greeted with hugs, he's greeted by fists and curses and rocks and staffs. This language of what happens to him, of them stripping him of his robe, is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to flaying a dead animal before sacrifice. I think it describes pretty well the intensity of the attack on their brother. They leave him bloodied. They leave him bruised. They leave him nearly naked while calling him every single dirty word in the book. And then at this point, as their hatred is felt in every possible way, they take him and they drop him into a cistern, 15 feet deep into a cistern, where they plan, without knowing Reuben's plan, whether they plan to just let him rot to death. The text is mercifully silent about what takes place here. It's mercifully silent about the details of of their hatred, of what they did to their younger brother. We don't even see how Joseph responds here, but years later, Genesis 42, we see these words uh, spoken by the brothers about this moment. It says this, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us 
and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You see, years later, their consciences are still haunted by the voice of their brother crying out to them, begging them, saying, Judah, Simeon, Asher, Dan, please, someone help me. I beg you, let me go. Don't do this. But Joseph's voice falls on deaf ears. They continue to spit at him, to hurl insults on him. The hate was very real that day. It's just seen at the beginning of verse 25. After they have this victory over their brother, so to speak, they just sit down and they enjoy food. They have a meal. Probably the meal that Joseph brought from home. And as they're eating, they see off in the distance a caravan. And Judah has an idea. Instead of killing their brother outright, let's sell him for profit. It's the best of both worlds. Joseph will be gone forever just like he was dead. And we'll be spared the business of having to actually kill him with our own hands. How charitable of you, Judah. The the traitors, they, they take... This man, they take Joseph and they head southwest to Egypt. And and meanwhile, Reuben returns and he finds that his selfish plan, this plan to restore himself to his dad, is ruined because Joseph is gone. His brothers devise this plan of, of soaking this once splendid coat in blood. And they send it on ahead of him. Notice the text. They don't even bring it themselves. They send it on ahead of them. Because they don't have the courage to lie to their dad's face. They send it on ahead, shredded and bloodied, back to their father. And they follow at a distance with their flocks, gleeful that this dreamer is now gone. When they get home, of course, Jacob is distraught. He's, he's grieving. He's mourning the death of his favorite son. And when they, they see their dad, they, they feign this grief in order to comfort him. And that's really how the text ends. The text ends on a low note. And yet also a glimmer of hope. It ends with Jacob mourning the death of Joseph because he thinks that Joseph has arrived at Sheol, at the grave. But the text tells us that in reality, Joseph has arrived in Egypt. And that's Genesis 37. It's a picture of wickedness. It's a picture uh, of this wickedness that's alive and well in God's people's hearts. Honestly, if we're, if we're if we're honest, it's, it's alive in our own hearts as well. God has not mentioned a single time here in Genesis 37. And that's not really that surprising based off of what takes place in Genesis 37. But that doesn't mean that God's not at work. Indeed, God is at work in many different ways. Let's look at four ways that God is at work here in Genesis 37. And this is how we're going to close. First, notice that God's invisible hand uses good and bad to accomplish his purposes. God's invisible hand uses good and bad to accomplish his purposes. Decades from this moment, God knows that the world is going to experience one of the worst famines it has ever encountered or will ever encounter. And God has a plan to save humanity. But even more than that, God wants to use Joseph to save humanity. You might be saying, well, why? The reason is because of his promise to Abraham and, by extension, his promise to save and redeem a people 
that we find in Genesis chapter 3. God wants Joseph to be the one. God wants a, a member of this chosen family to be, to be the one that saves the world so that his people will move to Egypt. They will reach a privileged status there. They will grow in wealth and they will grow in number so that he can finally fulfill his commitment, his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. And so God does everything he can to orchestrate every single detail in order to get Joseph down to Egypt. The coincidences that we find in this passage are not coincidences at all. God intentionally uses the fracturing of this chosen family to save this chosen family. God uses Joseph's foolish embellishment of this bad report to further drive a wedge into this family. God uses Jacob's favoritism to drive this family apart from one another. Rather than reconciliation, God uses the brothers hardening their hearts according to God's plan. So that way they can be even more distant from one another. But that's not enough. It's almost as if God lights a match and throws it on some gasoline-soaked wood. Because God is the one that gives Joseph these dreams. God knows very well the, the fragility of this family. And God decides it's time to blow it up. God does this. He plans on driving this family apart from one another in order to save them, in order to keep his promise, not just to Abraham, but his promise to creation. That doesn't mean that these people are guiltless by any means. Indeed, we see that they are very responsible for their sin, but God takes their sin and uses it for good. God uses the evil, but God also uses the seasonal grazing patterns of people in that day to, to get them out of uh, Jacob's sphere of influence. In those seasons, during the dry season, Mamre, or Hebron, where they lived, uh, was a very arid and dry land. And so when it was dry, they would actually have to go up to a place near Shechem to feed their flocks. And so God just so happens to use seasonal grazing patterns to get them away from Jacob. Then God has Jacob send Joseph again, which is, which is foolish, does it alone, which is even more foolish, to check on his brothers. And of course, it just so happens to be that a man is walking through the field to tell Joseph exactly where his brothers are, Dothan. It just so happens that the brothers went to Dothan, which, oh, by the way, just so happens to be on the main trade route between Gilead and Egypt, where slave traders were relatively common. The brothers just so happened to see Joseph a long way off so that they were allowed to let their bitterness ripen into a murderous uh, desire. God just so happens to use Reuben's selfish desire to restore himself to his father to spare Joseph's life. God just so happens to have a caravan of traders who are willing to accept slaves passing in the right direction when it could have taken days or weeks. Judah just so happens to rationalize that slavery is better than murder, which is debatable. Jacob just so happens to be deceived by these clothes and by this goat, just like he was deceiving his father decades earlier. God uses the good and God uses the bad to accomplish the, greatest pur the greater purpose of getting Joseph into Egypt. Do you think it is possible that God is doing the same in your life as well? 
Do you think that it is possible for God to use the good and the bad to accomplish his greater and bigger purposes in your life as well? To use your job loss, to use death in your family, to use bullying, to use difficult coworkers, to use the feeling of being alone, to, to use the, the feeling even of something like suicidal thoughts to accomplish his purpose in your life. God's invisible hand uses both the good and the bad to accomplish his purposes. Second, notice this. Notice that God uses suffering to prepare Jacob. He uses suffering to prepare Jacob. You might be saying, well, what is he preparing him for? Joseph is going to be one of the fathers of the nation of Israel. This nation that God has called as a community to be set apart from the rest of the world, to worship him, to point people to him. And before Genesis 37, Joseph is naive. He's foolish. He's likely prideful. And God has a plan to grow him, to shape him, to refine him. Is it possible that God could be doing the same thing in your life? God's redemptive plans, the way God works out redemption in our lives, the God way, way God works out salvation in our lives is usually not the way that we would choose, that we would like. How many of us would volunteer for Joseph's position? How many of us would volunteer to live in a family that is filled with favoritism, hatred, and murderous tendencies? How many of us would volunteer to be sold as a, slavery, as a slave by your own brothers? No one. But that's exactly what happens here because that's God's plan for Joseph. Maybe that sounds somewhat similar to your own life. Now, you're not being sold as a slave or anything like that, but you can, you can see that God's redemptive plan oftentimes goes through hardship. One author puts it this way. He says this, God's redemptive pathways do not lead us around conflict. They do not lead us around abuse, divorce, broken families, or even away from the expression and outworking of our own sinful natures. Instead, his perfect plan for our lives often takes us right through the heart of the storm, where our dysfunction and our sin, along with that of our family and our friends, is on full and tragic display so that the gospel of his powerful grace and sovereign mercy can be equally powerfully on display. The pain you experience in your life, the hardship, the suffering, things you're walking through right now, maybe. Is it possible that that is part of God's good plan to prepare you for something greater? Third, notice God uses sin to prepare Joseph's brothers. God uses sin to prepare Joseph's brothers. Every single where you look in this story, people are guilty. Jacob is guilty, Joseph is guilty, but certainly the brothers are the most guilty. But God has a plan for them as well. You see, just like Joseph, they were going to be the fathers of Israel, this community of people who are set, us, set apart to worship God. But God had a different plan in order to shape them, in order to prepare them. God planned on using their own sin. While Joseph is busy growing in his faith and he's growing in his perseverance because of the hardship he's experienced, and his brothers are learning a different lesson. He's learning, they're learning just how wicked they really are. And they're learning it through their own bitter experience. No matter how much they hated 
Joseph, no matter how jealous they were of Joseph, I doubt that before Genesis 37 verse 12, when they are in Shechem and they see Joseph coming from a long way off, no matter how much they hated him, I doubt that they thought that they were capable of murdering him, that they were capable of enslaving him. Next week, what we're going to see with Judah is Judah, is his own spiritual growth comes through his own sin and it comes through the exposure of that sin. These brothers have hearts that have been hardened and calloused by their sin, by their wickedness. And it isn't until their sin and their shame is exposed over and over and over that they finally understand what it means to follow God. In Judah's life, that first happens with Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. And then it later happens with his brothers in Egypt standing before Joseph. Again, do you think that it is possible that God could be doing the same thing in your life? To be clear, God does not approve of sin, but is it possible that God is using your constant struggle with sin, your constant struggle with one sin, your constant need to repent to remind you of your need for grace, to remind you of your own sinful heart, to remind you of God's good love for you? Paradoxically, our consistent sin is a reminder that God does not choose us because we are worthy of being chosen. But honestly, in spite of it, God is a great Savior for a whole lot of great sinners like us. The fourth thing that this text teaches us is this. Notice that God uses sin to remind Jacob of his constant need for grace. Notice that God uses sin to remind Jacob of his constant need for grace. Jacob is a man who has followed God for decades. He encountered God at Bethel. He wrestled with God at Peniel. He repents again and follows God once more at Bethel. And here, near the end of his life, Jacob is caught up in the same sins, same mishaps that we've seen characterizing him from the very beginning of his life. What is God teaching Jacob in his pain and in his anguish as he thinks that his favorite son is dead? I think that he's reminding Jacob of his never-ending need for grace. It doesn't matter if Jacob is 85 or 105 or 45 or 5. Jacob desperately needs God's grace. And is it possible that God is doing the same thing to you? If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time and you're frustrated that it seems like there hasn't been a major breakthrough in your faith, at least not in a long time, and a major breakthrough in your battle against sin, is it possible that God is letting sin linger in your life, not as a temptation for you, but as a reminder of your desperate need for him? As backwards as it sounds, I think that sin that is hard to shape or shake is a, is a reminder to us that we desperately need God. And that need for him will never change. His need, our need for his grace and his mercy will never change in our lives. Genesis 37 reminds us of that. You see, God has a plan for human sin. God has a plan for human sin. He can use the sufferings we experience to make us more like him, just like he did with Joseph. God can use our sins and the sins of others to give us a greater appreciation for grace, just like he did with Joseph's brothers. 
God can use sin to remind us of our constant need for God's grace, just like with Joseph. God has a plan for human sin. But most importantly, God has a a plan for human sin that is rooted in history. The story of Joseph points us to the story of Jesus. The offspring that is promised to the woman in Genesis chapter 3 is the one who is nailed to the cross. The one who fixes the brokenness of our world is the one who is nailed to the cross. God used the sin of people like Joseph's brothers to save the world from famine in the story of Genesis. And God uses the sin of the Jewish people, of the Gentile people, in the New Testament to save the world from their sin in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God has raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Notice this, this connection, this crossroads. Human sin, divine plan. is a part of God's divine plan, and yet humans are ultimately responsible for what has happened. God has a plan for human sin. And that plan results in amazing grace. That God uses sin to defeat sin. That God uses wickedness to defeat wickedness. That God uses rebellion to defeat rebellion. And if you are outside of the promise of God today, have you considered the great lengths that he went to to defeat your sin? God uses human sin for good. God has a plan for human sin. He uses it to make us more like him, but most importantly, he used it at the cross to bridge a gap between us and him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message of the cross. A message that says that we who are far from you we who were dead in our sins and our trespasses, we who were in active rebellion against you, deciding that we were going to be the gods of our own lives. You used our sin to draw us to you. You used the sin of people nailing Jesus to the tree to make a way for our sin to die. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would give us strength, courage, hope to face the the struggles, the suffering that we may face, that we could see the bigger picture, that you might just be using this for something bigger in our lives. And Lord, help us to trust in you. And you are unshakable hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.